Welcome to the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and on today's episode, we sit down with David Rogier. He's the founder and CEO of Masterclass, an online education platform where users can learn pretty much anything from top experts in their field, including Serena Williams, Martin Scorsese, Hans Zimmer, Wolfgang Puck, Bob Iger, and many more. We chat about everything from David's childhood and early career, his thoughts on the current state of education and what the future looks like, his approach to finding business ideas, how he ultimately got the idea for Masterclass, his biggest learnings and takeaways after seven years of running the company, and much more. Here we go. So I was raised in Los. I was raised in Los in in Los Angeles. Um, um, I was um, a very curious kid, so I asked lots of questions. Um, I stutter and always have, and it was worse as a kid. Um, and so I was seized in school for it. But my parents had this expectation that that wasn't gonna be allowed to be an excuse. So when they had friends over, the expectation was that I would sit with them and their friends and engage and engage in the discussion. Um, And the impact of that was, you know, it was very clear that the lesson I had to take from that was I'm not going to let how I speak to stop to, you know, to prevent me from doing something that I want to do. So that was great. The, the other impact that had was, I thought adults always wanted to hear my opinions. Well, in well when well when you're 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, most adults do not want to hear your opinions and thoughts. So in school I would ask lots of questions, but I was often then, you know, asked to stop or to not talk as much. Um, so I got in trouble I got in trouble for, you know, uh, um, not always agreeing with my not always agreeing with my school teachers. Um, so that was a big part of my childhood. And then childhood too, I was entrepreneurial. So I started small businesses or small jobs, post flat signs around my neighborhood, offering to do work. Um, and so even as a kid, I remember, you know, picturing myself as an entrepreneur and what would my office look like? I didn't know what it was, right? I didn't know what it really, really meant, but it was always something that was not, it was always something I was thinking about. Yeah. And David, you know, I would love to delve deeper into some of those small businesses and what those were and how they came to be. Uh, I remember when I was going to law school, there was this, we were studying uh, trial law and like litigation. And one of the movies that they quoted, I believe I could be wrong. It was either a few good men or my cousin Vinny. I think it was my, uh, I think it was both great movies, both great movies. And the reason I bring it up is because there was someone, I think there was an attorney in there who would stutter while he was giving his opening argument or his closing argument, he stuttered. And I'm pretty sure it was a few good men. No, it, it, it was in my cousin Vinny. Okay. My cousin I Vinny. really hate that scene. I really hate that yeah. scene. And they, ended up to not, they ended up to not go with him because he stutters. Um, yeah. Which like, anytime I watch a movie now and I love the movie, I always fast forward that part. It's that or it's hard for me to watch. But let me tell you why, you know, it, it was interesting that he brought that up. So he said that, and we were talking about just you know how to communicate, and they said as a result of the stutter, you know you had to listen to him, right? Because you mm-hmm. didn't know what was coming next, and it was <laughs> kind of a lesson in like just slow it down, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of like speeding up and just trying to rush through your argument, really let the people 
Ant- not anticipate, but let them wait for what's to come, right? Let them be patient a little bit. I'm curious, you know, when you were growing up or even now, has that stutter played a positive role or a negative one for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, look, I wish I was in control of how I said things more, right? Or I could control when I want to pause and not, right? So from that aspect, you know, I, I, I would go, I would rather be able to control it. I think the, the positive aspect of it, right, is the empathy it, it brings you. I mean, not being able to express yourself is a feeling you feel a lot as a stutterer, but it's also something that you could feel because of your gender, because of your race or your position, like a lot of other reasons. And that I think really helped me on empathy for anybody who can express themselves, right. Um, or being judged, not on what they want to be judged on. I felt like I was often judged on how I said something versus on the content of itself. Um, so I think that empathy was a pause, played a positive role in my life. Um, but I don't wish it upon anybody. For yeah. sure. But, you know, we mentioned that plus the combination of, you know, being at the dinner table with adults and, you know, them realizing like they didn't really, they didn't, you weren't just there to like provide your opinions or like talk too much. It was just kind of, you know, like you're, 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 you're sitting at the table, but they were adults and they were doing their thing. Did that, like, did that cause you to be more like reserved and just like not as expressive and open as a kid? Or because you strike me as like a really, you know, extroverted dude that like, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of energy from being around people. But, yeah. but was it, was that a difficult thing with, for you? No, I think I really liked it actually. Right. I was like, here are people that, you know, or here's a chance for me to say what I'm thinking about. So no, I think I was always very extroverted. I think it made me less like in Tim, less, less anxious around adults or less, less anxious to share my thoughts or opinions. So that I think was really great. But to your point, like in school that, you know, a teacher would say, would give their thoughts and I would raise my hand. They'd be like, yes, David. I was like, I don't agree with you because of X, Y, and Z. And that isn't what they want to hear in, in, in second grade. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel you. I I think I had a very similar experience. I remember vividly there was a one occasion. Well, there's, there was many, but there was one vivid one that I haven't forgotten. It was in first grade. And the teacher, the English teacher, would spell like words on the at the time chalkboard, and uh, you know we would have to write them down. And then we have a spelling test or whatever. And I remember she spelled the word garage, G A R A J E. And I mean, I'm a, I thought I was a pretty smart kid, but I'm like, any, I mean, I know how to spell garage. And so I raised my hand. I was like, you know, whatever, Miss, whatever her name was. I was like, garage is spelled with the G A R A G E. She's like, never correct me again, principal's office. And I'm like. Okay, like I was trying to do you a favor, but like, okay, that, fuck you. I mean, that so, is horrible. So, yeah, so I went to the principal's office. He's like, what, what did you do again? And I told him, he just starts laughing. He's like, he's like, if you want, you could hang out here. If you want, you can go to the classroom. But it was always this thing of questioning authority, right? Yeah. Or like, why is it done this way? Why can't it be done better, right? Yeah. But at the time, you don't know that's entrepreneurial or you don't know that's like curious. You're just like being a kid. How do you think looking back, you know, that's played, you know, an important role for you. Always having to question whether it's yourself or others around you or your team. Talk to us about about. Talk yeah, to us I mean, about I, that. I think this, I think that's the worst part of the education uh, of, of, of the school system is this idea that I think it was Noam Chomsky. I'm trying to remember who, who said that, you know, education in the States is obedient, is obedience training. Right. And, and I mean, you got in tr- in trouble for saying something, right. Or for questioning or for correcting or anything like this. And, and I think, 
Um, that questioning is is the one of the most important skill sets that we can develop. Um, you know, uh, I have this you know um, frustration about why we think education stops after co- at, you know po- 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 post college, right? Why education stops post college? I don't understand that. I mean, that is you know a fourth of your life. What, what about the education for the rest of your life? And in part, I think what, what, what is it drives that is that it used to be that the rate of change was very slow. It used to be what our, what our parents learned in school would last them for their entire career and entire life. That is no longer the case. Not only is the rate of change increase, it's accelerating. And so one of the skill sets I think we need to learn most in school is how to ask questions and what questions right. to ask and be open to the fact that we aren't going to always be right. And that's okay. The point is to actually learn from it. Right. Um, so you mentioned you were entrepreneurial as a kid, yeah. but um, were, were, was there like some other career path or something that you thought you would go down or, or from the beginning you were like, I'm going to eventually start my own business and that's it. No. So I started some stuff like as a kid in high school. Um, then I thought I'd go into, I would run for office. Um, so, um, I interned on, uh, on the Hill, I interned in my state Senator. Um, and I, I, uh, I realized that most people I met were not interested in making the world better. They were intrigued by power. And that was less, that wasn't, in, I didn't care about that. Um, and so I realized that wasn't going to be it. And then I was trying to figure out if I could use markets to actually solve problems. Um, and realize the impact there could be potentially just as big. Yeah. And so this is something you did, David, was this something you were th- doing after college or this is after high school before college? Um, I mean, in turn, I'm trying to remember for sure in college. Um, right. I, I think I also did it in high school too. If, if, if Yeah. <laughs> got it. Got it. Yeah. What, beyond like, you know, beyond work, I mean, what were things that, deeply interested you like what was something that you know as a teenager or even early days in college like what were you passionate about or like not i guess the word passion is tough because you don't know it's a passion but what did you really enjoy whether to do or to consume or whatever the whatever the case may be yeah i was always bad at hobbies it's always been hard for me to get into them i don't know i wish i could did it's always been hard for me um but there are fields and things that always interest me and I would devote ton, ton, tons of time to. Um, in undergrad, you know, I got exposed to economics and that like rocked my world. Like that was a new way of understanding parts of the world and that was really neat. So I went ultra deep there, um, wrote, pa- wrote papers, pres- you know, uh, went to different parts of the con- uh, of the world to present them. Um, um, I was... Uh, always i think you know i think for me that i get a high when i learn when i when whenever i learn something new so it was always this like quest to learn new to learn brand new brand new things um in high school you know the first time i was exposed to the to the to the to the internet i mean that like rocked my world like i can remember that in the the first the first time i wrote some html code and i saw it on the screen and i was like whoa I could do that. Right. And that was, that was really changing for me. Um, so there's always, I mean, there's tons of things I've gone deep on. I'm interested in. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that answers your question. 
No, no, definitely did. Yeah. I mean, and I'm curious, you know, you said you grew up in L.A., right? Yeah. How was your experience going to, to school in Missouri? Yeah, <laughs> that was a shock. Um, I grew up in L.A. Um, when I grew up in L.A., I would like vowed I was never going to work in the entertainment bit in history um that is clearly not true um i also grew up thinking we were poor um and it wasn't until undergrad when i saw income statistics where i realized whoa our family was was not poor i was just raised around tremendous amount of wealth um so that was really eye opening to to me um and in in missouri um, you know, parts where I went to school has a very high poverty rate. I think it's three X the nat that where it's three, it's three X there compared to everywhere else in the country, at least at the time. Um, so, you know, just the level of pot of, you know, uh, folks that were, were struggling was something I had never seen at that level. Um, yeah, but I got a world, I mean, it was a, in terms of education, I think I got world-class school. Uh, I learned a tremendous amount there and real and real and really great teachers. What kind of student were you like? If if you were to like, you know, you know, kind of look at about one. Wow. <laughs> but elaborate on that. You mentioned just you know that curiosity yeah, yeah. and kind of like you know um, authority and that kind of stuff. But kind of elaborate on on. It's, I mean, I'm 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 assuming you were pretty good with your grades because um, you ended up you know going and and having a great career. And I don't know, maybe you weren't, but you <laughs> tell tell us. I wasn't like in high school. I wasn't great grades. Undergrad, I wasn't great grades until part of the end. And what the big thing for me was. I had to learn that uh, I, that there was a distinction between learning a lot and getting good grades, and those are not those are not these are those are not always aligned. And I realized that there was a craft to getting good grades. So, for example, I'll share with you: um, in my first political sci- my first class in undergrad, it was in political science. And we got like, you know, it was a huge class because it's an intro class, right? It's a big class. And we get our first test and I write all my, I, I write my thoughts, my answers. And I get a bad grade. I can't remember what I got, but it was a bad grade. And I went to the, t- to the TA and I was like, wait, like, I don't understand. Like, what, what, I, I like answer this. I read all the materials of this. And he's like, you have your opinions in these. I'm like, yeah. He's like, that's not what I wanted. I wanted you to regurgitate what we had taught you. And I'm like, well, that's easy. But like that, what's the point? There is no thinking there. He's like, I didn't ask for what your thoughts are. And I was like, holy smokes. Right. And that probably took, even though I heard it, I, I rejected it. I didn't, I didn't like what he said. It probably took me a couple years to be like, uh, like, here's what they actually look for and want. Um, so that was one transition. I asked questions all the time in class. Every teacher. Sure, I've ever had knows 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 they know me. Does it does? I don't mean to mean that they like that they like me, but they know me because I would talk a lot in class. Um, and one of the times I remember um, was after the first year, and I, I and I think it was rough for me the first year because I was like, hey, I'm not being pushed on how I think. I'm being taught things, so I'm supposed to just write those down again. So I went to the associate dean or something, and I complained. Um, and, you know, she's like, okay, you have, a, you want to be pushed more. I'm like, yeah. She's like, next quarter, you come to me and I will pick your classes. And I was like, fine, deal. And so I went to her next quarter and she picked the classes I was going to take and I got my ass kicked. 
those were teachers and classes that pushed how I thought. And I realized like, Hey, there's an art to grades. There's also an art to picking the right professor to learn from and who you're going to learn from. Um, and I thank her every day. Right. Yeah. It's, it's funny. Cause it was like, you know, you were learning like, you know, politics, or you have classes in politics, but it is a lot of politics when it comes to like classroom environments, you know, you're, it, it's, it, you have to sort of play by the rules. Um, and it's not always conducive to learning. Like to your point, it's, it's yeah. not the best way to learn. Yeah. I know, I know a lot of people like love motivational quotes and the quotes in general, you know, we do it on our Instagram and, and I'm, I'm getting to a point. It's kind of a transition, I, I would say, but, uh, you know, <laughs> One of the quotes I heard, I think it was like in the middle of college, we both went to USC and, you know, I was lucky enough to even get in just because I, mean, I was not a good student in high school, even though I thought I was intelligent. I was just not good in class. Um, and somebody That's once okay. told me, they're like, you know, they're like, you know, says, don't let school get in the way of your education. That was Mark like, Twain, I think. I think Mark, Mark Twain. Mark Twain. Yeah, yeah. He didn't tell me, unfortunately. Somebody else told me. But <laughs> I, was like, I was like, damn, like that is deep. And so I was like, fuck school. That's it. We're done. We're going to go learn on my own. And I, and I didn't drop out, you know, but it just got me thinking like, wow, you know, this isn't the end all be all right. Like I'm just here because that's what I'm quote unquote supposed to do, but that's not necessarily what I should be doing or what I, sh what I need to do. Right. And so that's when I started to explore things that I enjoyed personally. And, you know, there were plenty of things I enjoyed. Um, and so that's what I kind of focused on and my grades suffered, but I felt like my network was growing as a result my my mind was growing and expanding into new things and continues to do so right so i'm curious for you you know it seems like you were the exact same way right where the school got in the way of your education but you know with that in mind what did you think or what did you end up doing after yeah. you know you were in Missouri? Uh, sorry uh, sorry when uh, you said after, after, the after you graduated college yeah yeah i mean i was gonna say sorry, just to add on there i don't think i think school can get in the way of your education you can it just takes work and nobody's going to tell you the rules and you have to figure out yourself you can get school and education to work for you and there's a massive amount so like you know after that dean helped push me to classes all of a sudden i discovered hey I need to lean into anything that's hard and scares me, right? And so the professors, the classes, I don't know anything about or like I'm not sure about or ones that everybody says is hard are the ones I'm going to take because those are going to push me. And you find the teachers and professors that love that you ask questions, that love you have thoughts for and are going to push you on it. So I actually think the education I ended up to get there in undergrad was fantastic, but it took me a while to learn how to take advantage of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there, I think there, I think there are tips and tricks and rules of how to take advantage of your education. Um, well, here's yeah. the, here's, here's, yeah. here's one example of like the mindset, you know, it's like yeah. you're, you, 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 you go to college because it's quote unquote the thing to do. Right. And, and, and yeah. the whole idea is you go to college, you get a good, you get a degree and then you can perhaps get a good job in whatever field you want to get into. Right. Um, and so, but the, the thing is, you know, the reality is that it is a very expensive investment to go to like a four year institution. And so when you're in the, in that environment, you know, you just want to maximize it. Right. And, yep. and if you come out, you know, if you do everything that you want to do, right, you don't, you don't sort of try to get good grades or try to get a degree that's going to you know help you get a good job then it's like well where's the ROI why did i just spend all this money and now it's you know j i learned but that's not what people see when they're evaluating like employers see when they're evaluating me so it's kind of this tough balance where it's like you know i'm i'm sure there are a lot of people who want to learn the most and 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 
grow yeah. in college. But they're, sh- they're sort of trying to balance it out with how do I also get good grades and show that I was a good student because that's what I'm being evaluated on. Yep, it's really hard. I, I, I think I have like strong thoughts here. I think we'll call it, getting good grades undergrad helps you for your first job. After that, it stops mattering, right? Now, what school you go to, people still care about, but every year you do more and achieve more, it becomes, you know, it's le- it's less important of a signal. I think the, the neatest part about undergrad, right, and, you know, if you're lucky enough to be able to afford to go and get in a school that, you know, that you want to go to, is it is four years of your life where you can devote to expanding your mind about things that you don't know about, by people at that school who know more than you do. And the hard part to your point is like, okay, but I still got to get good, good grades and I got to get a degree in something that I think I can get a job and all that. But to not seize that opportunity to me is a waste because, you know, I could dive deep into economic history or trade theory in a way that it is very hard to do after school. Right. Um, the hard part to your point is like, how do you take advantage? How do you know those things that you don't know yet that you like? And so I think the, your first job is like in college, your first year, I would say go as wide as possible to experience and take ran- a bunch of random classes. So you can sort of be like, Ooh, I like that. Oh, I like that. Oh, I hate that. It's, you know, um, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, going, going to college and, and learning from obviously people who, who know more than you yeah. do. And hopefully, you know these these professors have that breadth of knowledge that they, that you could learn from. But you know, yeah. I, so I was a business major, right? And and sometimes you know with classes like economics, for example, it's yeah. it's pretty pretty simple. Like you know, you learn economics, like that's that's what it is. But some yeah. sometimes there are classes like, for example, entrepreneurship or so, things that are a little bit harder to teach. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really matters who your professors are. And so I was naturally skeptical as well. Like I was always skeptical of c- certain things that I was learning because. I mean, I felt like I could be learning from someone even better in that in that yeah. moment, where someone yeah. perhaps had more success in the real world. It's like it's kind of like that, you know, A students work for C students yeah. and B students work that whole you know thing. And so that I mean, it's an interesting point, but I, I just feel like for so many years, um, the system uh, perhaps it, it depends on what the major is and what you're learning, but the system it doesn't work. It's not a one size fits all model. I I agree, and there's plenty. There's ton. There's ton, there's Tons wrong with it, right? And ways I would change it and improve it, right? Um, hands down, hands down. It, it, it's it's too it's very hard and takes luck, chance, and money to be able to get a good ed, to to be able to get a good ed, education, right? Which is a part that I think is messed up. Mm-hmm. Um, so you graduate from undergrad. Um, yeah. What do you do next? It was really hard to get a job because I studied econ and 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 politics, right? Because I said I wanted to be, I wanted to potentially run for office or go into politics. So every job interview I'd go to, they're like, why don't you work at like the Brookings Institute? And you're like, no, no, like I want to, like I want a job. I want to work for a company, your company. They're like, I just don't believe you. And that was like really hard, right? Um, And so, you know, one of the only jobs I could get out of school was working at a company, um, an industrial parts company, called Mick Mastercar. It's a fascinating business. Um, it was like one of the only jobs I can get. I was there for a year. Um, and then I got recruit. I got, it, it was, it, it was in, it was in ops. So like in, in the operations and supply chain, which is not an area I thought I'd, I'd ever be interested in. Then I get, rec- um, I get rec- asked to interview for a job at Tesco. 
So they are launching a chain of grocery stores in the United States to sell to sell food that is 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 healthy in basically food deserts. So to make it you know cheap to buy healthy food, which like kind of rocked my world. Um, so I went and joined them. It was pre-launch, um, and I remember I walked in for a job interview. I remember and I walked in and it was chaos. People were run 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 were all running around. There was food like everywhere that they're trying sampling. I was like, I love this. There was something about that energy of like creation that like I became addicted to and just hooked on. So we went there um, and we launched over two two hundred stores, and I then you know ran uh, basically a quant math team um, that did supply that did ops and supply chain. I mean, did you enjoy that? I mean, coming from someone who's studying like politics and economics, yeah. and now you're like running supply chain logistics, like you know, it's a lot more. Um, it's, I mean, I, I don't want to call it less creative, but you know, it's, it's a lot more different than you know being in politics <laughs> and world also even like policy and stuff. Also, even like being entrepreneurial when you're a kid, because you know there there is no blueprint for that. You're just sort of all over the place. But now you're sort of in a structured environment. So was that was that was that tough for you? I, I mean, the, the first job was tougher for me, right? Um, it was very, you know, that was tougher for me. The, the second job, um, I loved it. I loved it. And, and what I, I came to re- to understand and realize, and this probably took me a little beyond that. I think that the first 10 years of your career, and I'd be curious, I'd be curious how you guys think about this too, is about figuring out what great looks like feels like and smells like and you got to work for a bunch of different people and a bunch of different jobs to understand that because at first and i remember this if somebody does something the same way that i would do it i'm like that is great the next time somebody does something that isn't how i how i would do it which is like the next level right but would do but in a way i understand i'm like oh that is great but the third level then is somebody does something that you're like i don't understand it and the outcome is great and you're like Ooh, I have a lot to learn, right? In each of those steps, you're learning a lot more. And I think your first 10 years of your career is figuring out what great looks like at, you know, when we launched that chain of stores, I got a, such a wide range of experience working with such a wide range of folks. I saw a lot of diff, different folks and I got to understand that's what a great CMO looks like. That's what a great executive looks like. This is what a bad one looks like. And I just learned a tremendous amount, but I'd be curious how you guys feel about it in first 10 years of your yeah. career. No, for sure. And it's funny because like it's something I've thought about. And I don't know if this is like a famous quote or something, but it just like came to me one day. It was like the more you know, the less you know. It's like the more exposed you are to like, you know, just different people and different uh, the way, you know, the way they go about their work and, and the the level of like greatness that exists out there. Um, as confident as you might be as, as, a, as a person in the workforce, like you realize like, you know, you, you don't know anything. And so yeah. you're just sort of on this, in this path of discovery where in the process you're growing at the same time, you're yeah. realizing like, I still don't know anything. Exactly. Um, so, yeah. And that bar keeps raising for yourself because you're like, Ooh, I want to be as good as that person. I want to be as good as that person. Cause you realize I'm not as good as that person is. Right. And you think that you know a lot at first when you get exposed, people know more. You're like, Ooh, I do not know a lot. Right. Yeah. You know, so to kind of go and answer your question, you know, for I guess me and Pat have had different experiences. For me, like you know, I graduated law school. What is this? Twenty twenty. So it's been like three years now. Uh, but you know, I've had a bunch of internships before that: political, legal, business, whatever. But when I started working and actually getting paid, like I worked for 
like a solopreneur essentially. And so that's a completely different experience. And, you know, you see how spread thin they are. And I mean, like for me, it's enjoyable because you're like, oh, you're running around doing all this stuff. It's fun. You're being exposed to a lot of people, a lot of different businesses. And like we were in the hospitality and consulting kind of field. So that was great. But at the same time, you're like, how does this thing scale? Right? Like, cause I'm thinking I want something to build beyond myself and that's tough. Next job, I was like, wow, this is one of the worst I've ever worked for. <laughs> and like, probably the worst anyone's ever worked for. And like, I hated every single minute I was ever there. But it taught me a lot about how not to be in every single aspect, how not to lead, how not to hire, how not to fire, how not to grow, how not to, you know, do marketing. I mean, literally, every, I could write a book on how not to do business. And do the opposite of everything we did, right? Which I think is a great lesson in and of itself. But that also gave me the perspective that, you know, the culture matters. Whether I'm building my own company or going to go work somewhere else, the culture is a super important part of everything. Because look, at the end of the day, the product that you're building or the idea that you have, everyone can have those ideas. You can bring the right people to build something. But if those people don't get along, if those people don't truly believe in what they're doing in their work and they're not excited to be there, they're not excited to help you win, right? Like, David, you're an entrepreneur. You're the boss. You're the founder. But if everybody else on your team doesn't want you to win, you're going to lose. I don't care how smart you are, right? So for me, that's a huge thing. That was a huge lesson that I I took for granted, honestly. I was like, oh, I'm getting paid a good amount, whatever. It's a cool thing I'm doing. Fuck that. You know, like, honestly, it doesn't I matter. I completely agree. This is why, like, you know, when, when you see this in tech where they're, like, drop out of school and just start something early on, that's the way to go. Okay, that can work a small amount of time. But I actually yeah. think the other path is totally okay because, to your point, those first jobs, you learn what not to do. You learn from other people's mistakes, people you don't want to hire or employ. So you can still be a successful entrepreneur and not drop out and not say, I'm not going to school. I'm not going to work. I'm just going to start something. Sometimes right. to work, you're going to learn something that's going to help you be an entrepreneur. thousand percent. And I think that, you know, look, I, I've, I've kind of gone back and forth. Pat and I talk about this all the time. Like, do you work for someone? Do you not work for someone? I think the answer is really like, you know, it's related to your current moment in time. Like, yep. In five years, I might want to do my own thing and build a completely separate business from what I'm doing right now because I've just had an idea in five years in 2025 mm-hmm. and I'm like, that's it. I'm ready. Let's make it happen, right? Versus yep. you're 18 years old. You've basically experienced not much beyond maybe listening to podcasts, watching YouTube videos, hearing from other people, but you haven't felt it. I mean, it, it's tough. Like being a leader, right? I think about it during this pandemic. You know, it's very tough to manage. Like Pat and I were talking about this recently about do people go back to the office or not? You know, I'm sure we can talk about it later. Or, you know, school, do you go back to school or not? At the end of the day, for me, the answer comes down to culture. It's being around people. Like, it's so different. Like, yes, this is a great conversation, but I guarantee if it was in person, it was going to be so much better because our energies are in the room, right? I'm not going to try to get, like, cosmic on us because I'm not. But that, that that's it's just so different. So I think that actually feeling it and going through it and having that experience or it helps a lot. I mean, you can't create time. You know, that's the one thing you can't create. On the topic yeah. of just like entrepreneurship and folks who end up starting companies, you know, one one thing that I'm always fascinated by, and we we talk about it all the time. And I know people listening are probably like, "Oh my god, he's going to bring it up again." But it's ex- this topic of exposure, and it's something that it's so it's so interesting to me because you know, you, looking back at people's stories and and when they were younger, like the things that they were exposed to, and how that sort of you know, leads to where they are today. Um, but also like on the flip side, and is an argument definitely is, is, um, that there's this whole thing about ignorance is bliss, right? Like, is, is there such thing as knowing too much to the point where it stops you from doing certain things because there's a lot to be learned just by doing. So I'm curious what you think about that. Like when it comes to just entrepreneurship, you know, how do you, how do you know when it's like 
I don't know, you're, 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 you should stop sort of learning, quote unquote, even though you never, end, you, know, you never stop learning, but just learning and not doing versus doing and learning. You know what I mean? It's really hard. It's a really hard line. And I'm going to tell you about my own experience in it, right? And we, we were able to dive into it. It's really hard. I think as a general rule of thumb, there is no general rule of thumb. <laughs> like you have to just develop develop that sense yourself, to, to have to develop other people in your world that are going to tell you. Um, it, it, it just totally depends. There are people who have been deep in the craft for decades and then launch something in there. And then there's people who are, are told are complete, are completely brand new to something. Um, I don't think there's, I, I don't think there's a rule of thumb to it. Yeah. I don't. Think um, okay. So, so you're, you're at um, Tesco yeah. and you're there, you know, I think for a few, few years and then you end up going yeah. to business school. Uh, you yeah. go to Stanford, get your MBA. Yeah. Tell us why you decided to do that and what your experience was like in business school. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it was very different than your undergrad experience. Yeah. I mean, I, I get to Stanford. I get into Stanford. Am I allowed to curse on this podcast? Yes, I already did multiple times. Don't okay, worry. good. <laughs> I got to Stanford, and I was like, "Holy shit!" Because I, I mean, th- there's a part of me that didn't think like I'd ever get into a Stanford, right? Like I wasn't a good student, right? And so, like, there's some part of that was just like, I, I, like I couldn't believe it, right? I go, I go, I get, I go to Stanford. I, I, I get, I get, I get a yes. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm going. I go. And it was life-changing. I mean, it was hands-down life-changing. And I think there's a couple of things that were just life-changing about it. One was I was exposed to career paths and types of people I just had never met before. I mean, I was a supply chain guy for years, right? And these were careers and professions that like those companies did not come to my undergrad to recruit, right? I didn't have friends who did that stuff, right? That was completely new to me. And I was trying to think, you know, back to our conversation about how do I maximize this? I'm here for two years. So once in a lifetime opportunity, how do I maximize this? And I remember I asked somebody who I should talk to. And they told me the person I need to go talk to is Tristan Walker. I don't know if you guys know Tristan Walker. Um, it's an amazing story. So uh, I, he was a year ahead of me in grad school. And so I, so I went and talked to him. And I was like, what is your advice? And he's like, okay, I'm going to tell you a, a life story. So Tristan Walker at the time, this was like towards the end of his, his business school, but he wanted, um, he wanted to work at, for, at Foursquare, which at the time was like the hot startup. Everybody wanted to work at Foursquare. So he, he applies on the web. He doesn't hear anything. Um, he, somebody intros him to somebody who works there. He's not hearing anything back. So he finds the email address of the CEO and sent and shares with him and sent and sent and writes him a cold email. He doesn't hear back. He writes him again. He doesn't hear back. He writes him again. He doesn't hear back. He writes him again. This is four times. Okay, I have chutzpah. I would have stopped after four. Tristan keeps doing it. I think it's like eight, nine. Doesn't hear from him. So he's like, you know what? I'm just going to start to do work for him. So he starts calling different companies and says, hey, would – he's not saying he's an employee of Foursquare, but asking, would you want to run ads on Foursquare? And he gets three three organizations to say yes. So then he writes back an email to the CEO. I got you three advertisers for square and the ceo is like who are you and are you free tomorrow and he's like sure and he hops on a plane he goes out flies him he becomes their first head of biz uh uh first head of of bd right and i was like okay that is a story of like hustle and grind and taking advantage of things so i asked i asked her okay what is it you think i should do to take advantage to stanford 
And what he said, which I thought was so great, I think this applies to like almost any place that you're at, is write down a list of people that you want to meet and find a way to meet them. And so I wrote down people that I thought I could learn from tremendous amount. And like this was entrepreneurs, this was people in politics and economics. And I invited them to come speak at Stanford, to come eat at a meal. I got one person to say yes, so I can invite other people. And you just like, that was a way that I got to take advantage of, of the schools. And I've been doing that. I mean, ever since. Right. Um, right. Cause I realized that was such a powerful way for me to learn. And it's such an interesting thing that you bring up because s- such a big part of the college experience is that physical aspect, right. Of like being around just, really smart people and people that are doing things and, and getting to meet them and collaborate or just become friends. And and that obviously pays dividends for your whole career and your whole life thereafter. Um, but now with obviously like a lot of things moving online and obviously we'll get into masterclass, but I'm curious, like outside of that, what were some other positive things that came out of like perhaps your classes or were those things that you, th- yeah. you thought that you could have just done online and, and mainly the biggest experience was that in person I mean, I love in person, right? And I think in person help. I mean, there's a lot of great things like in person, Um, just the closeness you can get to people, right? The casual, unplanned, calm discussions and conversations. I I am an extrovert, so I am energized by other people in the room and that's not happening for Zoom, right? Um, You know, I mean, um, and, and... you know, uh, I wanted to learn things I didn't know about. I took a sales organization class. I knew I wasn't going to work in sales. That is like not interesting to me. That sales organization class was awesome. I learned how sales organizations are run. So like that was a world I didn't know anything about, right? Um, I took some law classes. You you know, there's people here on this podcast that know much more about law than I do. But that was like an exposure to things I, did, I, I didn't know about. Um, so that, that was just real. That was neat. And, uh, you know, a lot of people that I met, I'm still close friends with, right? I'm curious, David, who was on that list of people that you wanted to meet? That's a good question. Um, I want, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, it was a long list. Um, I wanted to, I'm trying to think of some really good, good ones. Um, I wanted to meet um, the CEO of OkCupid, um, Sam, Ye- Sam, Ye- Sam Yegan, um, who's a, so smart and really interesting guy. Um, at the time, was, I think the CEO of Cisco. Um, it was some self-driving car folks. Um, the only one I emailed, and I think wasn't able to come and said no to me was Aaron Sorkin. Um, he was busy today, but now Aaron Sorkin has a ma- has a master class, so it's all come full circle. He wrote, <laughs> yeah, he wrote, yeah. It sounds like it was mostly like folks who were like ceos or founders right like was that was that was there any reason for that or or was it just like i want to go for the yeah yeah that's a good question i think i was felt that gravitational pull there i was excited there's something about that i learned at tesco that creation from nothing to something was exciting to me um i also entrepreneurs i find are fascinating people to talk to because they have strong points of view um they're not afraid to break rules and the orth Orthodoxy and conventions, yet they're usually, now there are exceptions to this, quite more on the, you know, some there are exceptions to this, but I gravitate towards the ones that are 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 quite humble because they've been through a lot and have they've had amazing times, but also rough times. And that breeds a sense of like, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic, but I also know that life is tough. So yeah. when you talk to these people and you kind of were exposed to them now and you got to see what everything's all about, right? For the two years you're spending time with 
these incredible minds and incredible people and meeting such, you know, cool visionaries. Did you at this point know what you're going to be doing after? Or was it again, tough to figure out? I I didn't know. I didn't know. Um, I knew I probably wanted to go in tech. Um, I knew I wanted to help, help build something or create something, but I didn't know what, I didn't know how, Um, you know, at the time and still today, most MBAs get shit that they aren't entrepreneurs or they shouldn't be entrepreneurs because like MBAs are risk are very risk adverse. And so like, you know, then especially people didn't want to hire MBAs for entrepreneurial type roles. Um, So, you know, that was something I, I, you know, I had to push up against. Right. Yeah. So um, I know it was a few few years later that you started masterclass after graduating, but tell us what you did in between that time, just for context. Yeah. So, um, I went and worked in the venture. So I was investing in startups um, and, you know, investing and helping out our portfolio companies. So that's what I did. Um, Then, you know, um, I missed building and creating. I went, I went, I went up to my boss um, and told him I missed building and creating stuff. Um, And he said, you know, propose something. So, yeah, I proposed some structure. He ended up investing some amount. Um, and you know, obviously got a percentage and all that stuff. Right. Um, and you know, was working on ideas. Um, and this is the stage I think where, uh, you know, understanding when to, how to keep learn, keep learning and when to jump to jump to really dive in really plays a very large role. This is before you had an idea or did you already have the idea for masterclass? I did not have an idea for masterclass. So, so what was that conversation? Like, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was a few conversations. Um, you know, I, I, I told him I miss building stuff and I want, I want great stuff. And, uh, um, we talked about it a bunch and then he said, propose something. So I proposed, Hey, what if I work on some ideas, you invest some money. Um, and he said, okay. And it was very generous and kind, right. I mean, I mean, that was, I mean, I was floored. I was floored. So I was like, he, so, so he clearly, I mean, he clearly saw something in you where he was like, I'm just going to give you money. I trust that you'll, you'll take care of it and you'll, you'll build something. We don't know what we're building yet, but just go out there and figure it out. Was it, was that kind of like basically? Yeah. I mean, I had some ideas, right. But I wasn't sure what, I mean, I had worked for him in the fund for a while. Right. I know, I know, I know, no, I'd known him for even longer. Um, so, you know, it was, but it's also a seed investment firm, right? So they do first checks. So like, now this was like a little pre-usual, right? But like, um, I was going to yeah. say, is this what's called pre-seed? Yeah, I mean, basically, right? I mean, uh, soil, soil round. Yeah, yeah. going to call it. I mean, and it's really generous, and I, I, it meant it meant tons to me. It's also terrifying because I am not a successful entrepreneur, right? At this point, right? I don't really have an idea, and you're excited and thrilled with this. But your next question is, what the fuck am I going to do? And, you know, and it, I mean, I was exploring and trying things for probably about a year. And I'll be honest, that was a dark year for me because, and that like, you can't complain to anybody about, uh, you can't complain to anybody about it. Cause anybody you complain, you're like, I got money to do whatever I want. Any idea. They'll be like, I don't feel bad for you, dude. Right. So you don't get any, anything on the empathy. It's completely unstructured time. And everybody you meet is like, so what is your idea? So what is your idea? So what is your idea? And, you know, I, I, 
should I get, should I, there wasn't something that just spoke to me. So should I stop working on it? Should I end it? Right. Should I go back? I don't want to fail. This is a once in a lifetime chance. Um, it, what, it were was, some of those, what were some of those ideas? Just, yeah. So, you know, I knew you guys were going to go here. Um, so I am allergic to nuts. I'm death, like deathly allergic. I stopped breathing after like them. And I remember my dad was like, David, how cool would it be if you could like wave a wand over food and it would like turn red or beep if there are nuts in it? And at first I was like, I mean, yeah, that'd be awesome. Thanks. And then I was like, you know what, dad, I need to really think about this. So I started doing some work on it and you're like, you could actually develop some tech that like gets pretty close to it. And so I started running tests and experiments um, and we got it to work like most of the time. The problem is, is if it's life or death, most of the time is not a good, is not a good bar. Um, and so we stopped, so we stopped working that. Um, so that was like some ideas we're doing. I thought you were going to say you developed like a not nut nut. Like a no nut. Way nut. beyond my sophistication of skill, but that would be awesome. But I actually well, think that's sure like psychosomatic. Yeah, I'm sure that's going to happen because, you know, you have this whole beat, you know, no no meat, meat, no chicken, chicken, like, you know, plant-based or whatever. So, I mean, I don't know how you could create plant-based peanuts since it's already plant-based, but who knows? Maybe they'll create meat-based peanuts. That's <laughs> but, very right. true. But he, if somebody gave me a shot today that said tomorrow I'm cured of this allergy, I don't think I could ever eat a nutty, like still, because yeah, it's exactly. so, you've been so trained my entire life that that equals death. Right. Right. Yeah, it's traumatic. You know, focus, David, I'm curious. Like, you know, there's a lot of people, funny enough, that during this whole pandemic, even like yesterday, somebody texted me in and I was just shocked at this person because they were asking me something about an idea. And I was like, is this your idea or is this somebody else's idea? And he's like, no, no, it's my idea. And I was surprised because this person is just so corporate. And uh, I was like, what's happening? You know, you're, you're thinking entrepreneurially finally. And he's like, ah, oh, you know, it's just not fulfilling to be at this corporate job. And, you know, I don't feel like I'm really using, you know, going and using my potential. And so a lot of people, I think, during this time are, even though they don't have that money like you did, or maybe they do, um, you know, they're using this time to think and get creative. But I'm curious, and perhaps this is helpful for those to those thinkers, what process did you use to come up with ideas? Was it you're just laying around watching TV, oh, there's an idea, or going out walking, there's an idea, shower idea, like, or were you purposely brainstorming? This is one of the parts of entrepreneurship that I find the most anxiety producing is finding that idea. Like, you know, you want to be an entrepreneur. There's some itch to it, but like, how do you figure out that idea? And then how do you pick that idea? I realized, or what I did was I did a bunch of, I did a bunch of ways to, ways to approach it. And I did things like, what are my own needs? What are needs of other people that I'd be interested in? Right. So I posted ads on, on cre on on Craigslist, offering to pay people just to talk to them about their their needs in certain areas or their what they liked and didn't like. Um, I looked at trends, right? I started to create like you know I, all these different things, and I realized one of the most important parts for me was coming up with what are the principles you're going to use to make a decision. And one of the principles for me that ended up being so important was choosing something that even if it fails, you are going to be proud of it. That to me was a constraint. And I think one of the most important things and advice I give anybody listening is pick your constraints. Not a lot of them, but pick a, but pick one or two of them. And for me, that was one of them that got all the Salesforce optimization ideas out. And it was going to be something that I really cared about. Yeah. So, so 
talk to us about that moment when you thought yeah. about, was it a moment or was it a series of moments when you thought about masterclass and what was it at the very beginning? I, always, I also think this is a myth. People are like, one, there was a light bulb and all of a sudden the idea came. I usually think when you dig in and you guys are the pros of this, you dig in on for, it's usually like a series of things and it kind of evolves over time, right? Um, so for me, it was a couple things. One, I posted ad on, uh, oh, sorry, I got that constraint of choosing something that even if it fails. And that made me really think about what it, what, 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 what that is. So um, I was raised in part by my grandmother and um, uh, uh, so I, like I would often stay with her after school and stuff like this. And so I remember going to her house one day. Uh, I was in second grade, so however old you are, and eight, nine, something like that. And uh, I was complaining to her about the math homework I had. So obviously I didn't have a lot because I'm like eight years old. And um, she tells me that she has a, a story she wants to tell me, which is like the last thing you want to hear when you're like a kid. She tells me a story. When she was 16 years old, she was living at the time in Krakow, Poland. Her and her mom go on a family vacation. Dad's going to join, stays home a couple of days to finish some work. While they're on vacation, the not the not the Nazis invade. They take everything and they kill her father. She flees to New York City. Only job her, her mom gets on a factory floor. They're working the factory floor side side by side. My grandma, my grandma decides she wants to become a doctor. Finds every medical school in the state of New York, applies them all by hand, gets a no from every single one. Keeps working the factory. Applies again next year. Gets a note from every single one. Starts calling the deans of admissions and asking, why am I not getting in? They all hang up on her, except for one guy. He says, I'll be honest. You have three strikes against you. You're a woman, an immigrant, and you're Jewish. Hangs up the phone. She keeps working the factory. Applies again next year. She gets into one school and becomes a doctor. And I'm staring at her because this is like intense shit to be hearing from like, you know, complaining about math homework. And my grandma tells me, David, the point I'm trying to make you is education is the only thing that someone can't take away from you. That stuck with me like a rock. And I realized, okay, this is my one chance. Doing something that's, I'm going to be proud of it fails. I'm going to build something that people can't take away from others. I'm going to do something that helps people learn. P- posted the ad on Craigslist again, talking to people just about their education, their schooling, heard a bunch of needs, started thinking about myself. Why I love to learn. Why don't I take classes online? How come I don't like those online classes? What are things I do like? I started to mock stuff up. Um, started running, you know, I mocked up mocks of what the site could look like. Uh, I put it in front of people, asked what their reactions and thoughts were to it. And it started evolving. And then you're like, hey, what if it could be like the best people in the world? And you start thinking about that. You're like, well, if Aaron Sorkin taught a master class, even though I would, or taught a class, even though I would never write a screenplay, I have no interest in that. I would take that class. That would be amazing. And it just started kind of evolving like that to the idea like, holy shit, if we can get the best in the world to teach, and if we can make it engaging, as engaging as watching a movie or film, that could actually make it possible for anybody to learn from the best. And that's like kind of how it evolved. Right. Cause I can imagine like, I mean, this was like around what, 2013 ish, um, 2012 end of 2012 and 2013. Yep. Oh, I think, I don't know if I remember correctly, but I'm sure there were like other pro uh, online just websites that you could go and learn from just anyone. There were, there were MOOCs. Yeah. So at the time there were MOOCs, most of them were a webcam in the back of a, of a, of a, of a classroom. They're taking education system from hundred years ago, putting a wet, a webcam back of it and being like, that's an online class. That's crazy yeah. idea now. Right. Right. Yeah. And MOOCs for those that are listening that don't know are, are massive, uh, uh, online open courses, um, which, you know, um, there, there are different platforms, but essentially that's what it is where a bunch of people can tune into the same content. Um, and so, 
But so you were thinking, all right, I'm going to go after the best of the best. I'm going to find the best people for each of these topics or each of yep. these uh, you know, classes and um, have them teach it. So Otherwise, what was the first? you would never get access to, people you would never learn from, which I think is unfair, and saying, hey, here are people that are the best. In the, they're not maybe the best school teacher of it, but they are the best at that craft, and now mm-hmm. everybody's going to be able to learn from Right. So there's a bunch of stuff going on here, right? Like you're thinking, I'm going to build a platform, right? And there's a few different parts of this platform. There's going to be the people who are going to learn and, yep. and, and get educated. There's going to be people who are going to teach. And now it's your sort of job to go find, I, I mean, this is whole chicken and egg thing, right? With any platform is like, who do I go after first? How do I, do I go after the audience that that's going to be paying for classes or is it going to be um, the, the, the folks who I'm paying to teach? So what, do, what is your first step? Like, what did you end up doing once you figured out this is what I want to do? I made a list of what are my hypotheses and then I figured out a way to test them. And this is something I think like, I, I think we sh- you, you can test so many of your core assumptions without having to build stuff. So like you think about the hypotheses like early on, it was like, okay, I got to, am I going to get these people or like the, the big questions you have to answer or like, I want to be able to get these people to actually teach. Okay. I have to prove that. I have to then get, I can make nice content out of them, right? So that's good. Then I have to get people to actually want to buy the stuff. And you don't have to work in, 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 in order. So like getting the instructors was the hardest part at the beginning, right? But okay, so that's really hard. So I, I got to work on that, but that's going to take a while. But I can start making stuff and see if I can make great stuff with it. So we filmed test classes and we did it with my parents. We did it with friends, right? We did test classes and you learn a lot. You're like, okay, our first classes looked really bad, right? And we needed help there, right? So we had to come up with a plan there. And you start to evolve this, all of a sudden, like you're like, okay, I can make good classes out of this. Okay, that's great. You know, next thing, are people going to want to do it? How can I test demand? Can I put out a poll, a survey? Can I mock stuff up? How can you do those things? And so it's all about trying to prove those hypotheses. And I think this is honestly a big like uh, hack on the fundraising side. Investors want to invest in, you know, the the less risk there is, right? Well, one way early on to decrease risk is to test your core assumptions, right? Um, but the hardest part by far was that first one. I had to get the first people to say yes. Mm-hmm. And were you going to them with already an idea of what they would teach or was it more of a collaborative effort? Like, hey, we have a platform. We want you to be an instructor and teach what you know best, but we'll work together to figure out what that exactly. I tried about. everything. <laughs> so there were some we went, like, you know, sent over like a very tight thing of what your class could be on. Other ones, you know, it was much more vague because they were going to want to help sh- help shape it. I mean, I sent cold emails, cold calls. I mean, you know, I mean, that was a year of grinding and hustling. Um, David, what what was your like mission from the get go? I mean, were you going out there to change education, or were you just trying to, you know, democratize and do something? Democratize genius was our mission from day one. And 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 did you think that you were going to be able to build something that scaled when you first began, or were you like, I have no clue where this is going to go. Let's just start and figure it out. It's a good question. I had some clue, right? Like, I mean, I looked at how big the market can be, right? Like I wanted, I didn't want to do something that was going to, for me, that this was gonna be a lifestyle business. I wanted to have large impact. And it wasn't about wealth creation, it was about impact. And so I think the proxy of a, you know, a size of a company um, can be a proxy of impact. So I wanted that, but I think, you know, I did a bunch of tests. I did some polling. You're like, okay, look, I can get half the, half the country or 
you know, fourth of the country to be interested in this. If I can do that, it's a big business, right? So I wasn't as worried about TAM there. Um, I was worried about the economics, how that would work. At the time, lots of people didn't think people would pay for high quality content uh, and certainly for education like this. And so that was why I had to do tests and polls and put stuff in front of people to see if they would. And I quickly saw the people will absolutely pay to improve their own life. Hmm. One of the so we talk, you you bring up MOOCs um, and and one of the things we often see with with MOOCs or just comparing it to like a traditional sort of four year program is first of all obviously it's more accessible more people can access that content and learn and I would argue like you can learn there's so much more out there through MOOCs or just other types of content whether it's books or podcasts or whatever to learn from than there is in you know that you could learn in a four year environment like there's more information out there than what you learn in school in your program. But, you know, how do you see that sort of interactive aspect working when it comes to that side of things? Because there is that, there, there's this like, you know, everyone is sort of learning the same thing, but it's, again, it's like this one size fits all where do, does everyone learn the, the same way? Like, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I think that it, the personalized aspect of education is super important too. So yeah. how did you think about, or do you still think about that when it comes to um, yeah. MasterClass? Yeah, I, I think for me, yeah. So there's one is, and the pandemic is accelerating this trend. There are certain people on certain topics that you want to learn from the absolute best. And you're not going to be able to learn from them on a one-on-one setting. But you're crazy if you don't want to learn from them. So, for example, if you can get somebody who's the world's best at almost anything that you're interested in, you want to hear what they say. Now, look, it might not all work for you. You're going to have to apply it. You're going to have to practice it. So let's give an example. Let's talk about Steph Curry. If you want to learn how to shoot the basketball and become a great shooter, you're going to have to run drills, practice. You're going to shoot tons of times. You're crazy if you don't want to hear what Steph Curry has learned about how to shoot. Now, you might not agree with it. That's not going to be that, that is not enough to make you a great basketball player. But Steph Curry is probably the best shooter that we have seen in the NBA since ever since the NBA began. And so to me, it's, you know, understanding how they work, what what things they do, what rules that, that they break, what hacks they came up with um, is invaluable. On top of that, you then have to figure out what do you do on the in-person side? What do you do on the one on the one on the one to one side? That's why for us it's important we have a, commu- a, a community of people in the class with you that you can learn from. There's other ma- other materials for you to learn from, and but I think that's the the first part is you want to be able to learn from the absolute best. Yeah, and and I, it's funny because like I feel like if someone was to think of a, a platform for teaching or like an educational platform. The, one of the things people probably wouldn't think about is like, how do you improve your jump shot? It's like one of those like just out, crazy out there things that, you know, I'm sure like over time you figured out, but I'm curious, you know, how do you go about, or I guess before I ask this, um, what have you found, you know, after, over the last seven or so years of running the company have been the types of topics that have been the most popular that people are, are able to take so much away from learning in this sort of way? This is what's been fascinating to me. I think people, and there's a myth, especially in education, that you're only interested in one thing, Right. That what we've seen, I think, is one of the most interesting things is people are not one, they don't have one dimensional, they are multi hyphenate and interesting lots of things. So, I forgot the exact stat, but this is kind of close. I think this is close. I think if you take Steph Curry's class first, the most likely class you'll take after that, I think this is right, 
is Steve Martin. Wow. People go broad. And so because they're curious, they want to learn. And what ends up Steph's class, yeah, it's gonna help, it's gonna it's gonna help you on your jump shot. You're also gonna learn like how to train for things that even aren't basketball, right? How to overcome adversity. I mean, he almost did not get a scholarship, right? I mean, people thought Steph wasn't, I mean, there, you ask Steph, people about Steph in high school, is he going to go to NBA? People would, people would have laughed at you, right? Um, he, and, to he didn't go to like a D, you know, like a top D1 college. Yeah. Um, and I mean, how Steph practices and trains is mind blowing, right? I mean, he does things and you guys have probably seen clips of this. If you're a basketball fan, he will dribble a basketball with one hand. The other hand, he'll take another ball and just throw it up in the air. Yeah. And you're like, what is going on? Why are you doing that? That his mind has to work on overtime to do that. So then when he's in the game, the game is like in slow mo for him, right? He's like, I only have one ball, <laughs> right? Like this is way, like way easier, right? I mean, this is stuff that you can apply in your own life. Yeah. I'm curious, you, you know, when you first started talking about the, when masterclass first began, you said one of the biggest challenges was going to be finding the instructors, right? The best of the best. Yeah. Um, but you obviously had that conversation with Tristan Walker early on. You knew that, you know, that you had to never give up to find the person you want to find, right? I'm curious, who was your first guest and, or sorry, first guest, I'm confused with this podcast. Who was your first instructor yeah. and how did that eventually trickle and had that, you know, trickle down effect to everybody else? I mean, it took a long time to sign people. So along the way, lots of people said, stop working on the idea. Good, good. You have to change ideas. It's not going to work. And I was like, no, like this is going to work in science. So the first three we got, which are all really close, um, was Sir, uh, was Serena Williams, Dustin Hoffman, and James Patterson. Um, right. Those were the first three we got. Um, and how'd you get them? I mean, they each have a story. James pa J James Harrison, I cold called and I cold emailed everybody I could find on the web. On Serena, we had pitched her agency she was at lots of times. Um, I mean, God did close to them because the amount of times we tried to pitch. Um, Dustin, we knew somebody in his world, right, to try to, try to help. Um, but, I mean, the first three, you got to figure out what is it they care about, right? And what they yeah. were, I mean, all three of them, they had someone in their life that changed. That was a mentor that changed their life, and they wanted to. They wanted to give back, and they didn't care about the risk. They don't care about the money. It was like this is what this is good for the world. Um, so after I mean, we three, it started going faster. Yeah. So, like, give for let's let's take Serena for example. Like, yeah. what was it that got Serena to say yes, and what sort of value was Serena going to bring to your customers, yeah. her students, right? Like, walk us through that process. Yeah. I mean, Serena, we did lots of work to figure out what things she cared about. So in the pitch we did, right, it's, you know, doing those things and, um, you know, impact and reach and is it going to be high quality and, you know, who's going to be the audience and, you know, her, her and her team are very smart. I mean, she is, she is, she is brilliant. And, um, Yo, she asked lots of questions and like wanted to know a lot, right? And wanted to vet me and us and our investors and, and making that out. And you know, especially early on in your first customers, the first part, the first partners you're with, I mean, they're making a bet on you, right? And you and your team. And so 
the more you can do to make them feel comfortable and good and safe, which is why in part it took a while because like they had to gain that confidence. I don't come from the entertainment industry. I wasn't a successful entrepreneur right beforehand. So, I mean, I had to build up that trust. And you think right. of ways that you can build up that trust. Who are the people that we know? Who are, are there people I've met along the way that can vouch or get involved in the project, right? Um, so one of them very early on, so we you know, did a bunch of test shoots and I shot some stuff and it looked bad. It looked really bad. So I was asking friends for advice. And I got connected to this guy named Bill Gutentag, who's a two-time a cat. He's won two Oscars for doc filmmaking. So I got connected to him, really excited, right? Oh my god, like the first professional filmmaker. Man. So I went up, we uh, we went out and you know ate with him and asking for advice. How do we shoot these? What are we going to do? You know, because our other stuff looks bad. He's like, you're not going to ask me to shoot. I'm like, wait, what? He's like, this sounds kind of awesome. I'm like, wait, you're willing to shoot our classes? He's like, sounds kind of awesome. And so, like, he shot, I think, our first, two of our first three classes. And all of a sudden, the classes look great, <laughs> right? But also, that was also, I got to go in the pitches and be like, hey, you're going to have an Academy Award winning filmmaker doing. And the other of the first three that we got was Jay Roach, who's a filmmaker who's amazing and great. And we, we've become close friends. And, you know, getting these people who, like, you know, you do not see on the cover of Vogue, but are world-class at what they do to involve, it just lends trust, right? right. And around, you know, in these early days when you're trying to get these first few instructors, how many people, how, how big was the team? Like, it was you and, and how many others? I mean, in the beginning, it was just me. So that was, for a while, just me. Then we started adding folks. So, and... Um, co-founder came on board so you know it ranged from one to three okay and and i think i read somewhere you know before you had even launched you had raised a seed in series a of around six and a half million dollars yeah. which is like i mean you know you talk about having something to to present to to yeah. in your pitches and stuff how can you talk to us about how like those early conversations were like with your yeah. investors like how did you get that how did you I mean, Series A usually comes once there's like product market fit and there's like, you know, you're, you're sort yeah. of showing that this product is working. But what what was it that you thought from the beginning, like these investors were so willing to invest yeah. before you had launched? So the people who led our Series A were the folks at Javelin. And the person who led it is Alex Gervich, who's wonderful. Um and we, you know, the pitch to him, you know, I, I guess we try to think about it along the way. It was like, okay, what things do we have to prove, right? This is going back to the very long. What are the process? We have to get the, we have to get the top talent. Can I make great classes? Will people buy it? Well, when we had pitched him, we had already, I think, signed two or three instructors and we had filmed one, we had filmed one class. That's all we could afford, right? We couldn't afford more. But I, I just proved the first two big hypotheses. So the big hypotheses left for him, right, was like, you know, and now, of course, there's more to add on, was are people going to want to buy it? And look, it was a big risk. I mean, he's taking that bet before launch, right? So he's taking a bet in me, in the team, in the idea, and the product. And like, you know, it was, uh, this was before A. So we, we were still a mess. And to his credit, he saw it. I mean, and he saw the potential um, and, you know, he's now, you know, he's invested more and more every single round. We've become very close. He's on, he is on our board um, and he's played a very key role in, in building mm-hmm. the company. Um, so, so once you start getting these first few instructors and shooting the content and building out the team, how did you end up starting to get, you know, folks to come onto the platform and pay to, to learn and, and watch, you know, experience the content? Like how was that? 
just kind of, you know, were the initial classes like super small or like, did you fill them out right from the get go? Like, how was that process? It was scary. I mean, think about it. We launched in 2015, in May of 2015, right? So I've been working on this for a long time. We launched on the 15th of May. Uh, I think 15, right? 12th, 15th. I'm trying to remember the date. We launched in mid in May, in mid May of 2015. And, you know, and I think every entrepreneur who's listening to this podcast will understand this. You're like, I've poured my like life and soul in this for last years. We're going to launch and everybody's going to care because <laughs> this has been my life's work. And, you know, I remember someone on the team actually got with time with maybe like 12 people, 15 people. Someone on the marketing team brought me over like a phone charger. He's like, because your phone's going to be off the hook. People are going to be calling and talking about it. We launch. First day sales are not good. I went home that day and I actually cried. And like, I'm not a crier. And I remember I called my parents, which is embarrassing. I'm, I'm not proud of this. I was like, what, what do I do? I mean, we got this, these big names attached. I got 12 employees. And I mean, fuck. I mean, we, I mean, this is the big day with launch press and, you know, oh, like what? I'm, and they're like, put it on a brave face up until you figure out how to solve it. So next day I go to the office, I have a brave face on, but that is not easy. And I see someone on our marketing team who runs our paid marketing team and he has a big smile on his face. I was like, Reed, why are you smiling? He's like, this is going to be a huge business. And I'm like, why? Because like, I'm looking at the numbers. He's like, have you seen the CACs I can get? Oh, we can blow this up. And day two sales were above day one sales. Day three sales are above day two sales. You're like, oh, if the curve's going to be like this, we might be okay. So probably on day one, I thought this business was failed. On day, on day, on day two, I thought we might be a big business. I mean, you know, you talk about the customer acquisitions costs. You know, why do you think that was? Why do you think people were so interested in this right like i know you had worked on it for two years and so yeah. you truly believe that people should be interested in this but hearing from your customers yeah you know eventually yeah. um yeah. what was it that they were intrigued by what got them to click what got them to eventually take out their credit card go to the other room pick up their wallet type those 16 digits the cvc code whatever the hell and purchase right like what made them do that yeah really good question at first, it was nothing. It was something they had never seen before. Oh my God! I can learn from a Serena Will from a Sir from you know, excuse me, from Serena, right? And and also early on, it was curiosity and like uncertainty around it, right? Um, and you know, but this idea that you could learn from this person, but also it looked kind of fun and interesting. It didn't look like school. It was nothing that you. I mean, you know, um, our ad format is a movie trailer basically is how we think about it. Right. And that you're going to, now we're, you're going to learn something we're going to teach you, but we're going to make it as compelling as a movie trailer. That was an ad format that did now you see it more at the time that did not exist. Right. And you know, that allowed us to hook people in, to explain people, right. To educate and and stuff like this. Um, And, you know, but early on it was about the instructors. It wasn't masterclass. They didn't care. They didn't know who we were. It was about the individual classes. Once we switched, because early on we sold one class at a time, we eventually switched to doing a subscription, 180 bucks a year, you access everything. Now people sign up because of Masterclass. To be, they want to be part of Masterclass, they want to take classes on Masterclass. Um, but early on it was about the, about each individual class. And, and I know, like, for example, when, like, for example, when Netflix started, right, 
you know, yes, they were just DVDs, but Netflix is one of those companies that end up raising their prices over time. I've read different arguments about, you know, starting higher and then, you know, going down as you build a customer base or then starting lower and then building up. How, what was Masterclass's philosophy on that? I have lots and lots on pricing. Number one, you should always test it. You're going to have lots of instincts. Your instincts are going to be wrong. Um, so always test it. Test it. You could, we, how we began testing was doing polls and surveys. For any of the very quant people out there, there's a, mod, a way to poll. It's called a Van Westerndorp model or approach. I find that really helpful. Um, you can run ads. You can just mock stuff up and put it in front of people. Um, and then also... Price is a statement of brand. And I think people don't often talk about that when they talk about brand. Your price says a lot about your brand. So we wanted, you know, individual class at at 90 bucks. It was a whole number. We're not trying to cheap you by saying it's 99.99, right? Um, it's a price a lot of things we're not priced at, so we can kind of own that price. I def- It's not too expensive, but not way too cheap. We wanted to do it, and I, I agree with what you said, you can always go down on price. It's very hard to go up. So we thought, okay, that's the upper limit. Let's 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 and start there. Um, and then a couple years later, or a little bit after that, we then launched 180 bucks a year, right? Um, which was basically for the price of two classes. You get access to everything, right? And we didn't. So, um, and what is it now? It, it's it, we it stayed at 180 bucks. So I want to talk about sort of what your vision is, you know, you know, you're seven years in and and the company's grown immensely, but what your vision is for the future of of this company. But before we do, I want to, I think it ties in well is talk about just future of education and what, where things are going. And I I want to hear your thoughts because I'm very curious to what you think, you know, obviously with the whole whole pandemic, we've seen this like really rapid shift from in-person to online where people just weren't prepared for it. And we've had to sort of figure it out along the way. Uh, But now it's kind of hopefully becoming a little bit more stabilized and, and, and more innovation is going to happen in this area. But, you know, and, and we always, you know, one of the things we hear about again, MOOCs is like, well, it's not a, it's not a full, uh, what do you call it? Substitute for in-person education. You know, it's like a supplement to it. You you get, You know, you get your college degree and then you all, you can also learn different things online. But, you know, um, I, I do think that there's a lot of, with, with all the innovation happening in this area, it could quickly shift from, you know, the traditional four-year degree, not even being what people are going after. It's more like, like to your point is just education holistically, like it doesn't matter where you learn it, you just learn it. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess what are you, what are your thoughts on where we're headed in the next maybe yeah. five to 10 years when it comes to this? Yeah. The fact that we were unprepared for it, I think to me is like um, these trends were already occurring. And so like, you know, we could have prepared for a lot more and we should have. And a lot of institutions did, right? I should, a lot of institutions did, but a lot of institutions did not. And we're, we're we're behind on it. I think it will accelerate a bunch of trends and a lot of trends are stuff that we've already seen and just having more of. I think a couple interesting things to me in this. One is for the first time since we were since moms and dads were like responsible to, to actually homeschool parents, I mean, to, to act, to be the homeschool school teachers, parents are back in the classroom. I mean, they're with their kid hearing what's happening on zoom. And a lot of them are going to be impressed by what their school teachers are teaching their kids. And happy, but a lot aren't going to be, and that's going to drive a wave of, of immense change innovation. Nothing drives you to, 
to start a company more than having a bad experience. And, and so I, I think that's really going to, we're going to see a whole wave for the next five to 10 years of new companies in ed tech that come from moms and dads. You know, David, uh, to that point, you know, one thing that, you know, I've talked to a lot of parents about, especially, you know, parents of younger children is you're right. Some are super impressed. Others are the complete opposite route. They're like, what the hell is my kid learning? Right. But at the end of the day, a lot of them, it's, they just don't like the fact that their kids are home. So, you know, just, I guess, playing devil's advocate, like, yes, education technology will continue to improve, but how do you get kids out of the house into schools or pods or whatever you want to call them, but continue to, you know, innovate and improve education, whether that's in person, whether that's supplemental education or whatever, right? Because at the end of the day, parents aren't necessarily only sending their kids to school for them to get educated. They're sending them to school to get rid of them for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day or whatever it is so they could go to work. So, you know, keeping those two things in mind and like, cause, cause I feel like just having a fully online education is beyond reality. I, I don't think it's realistic. So, especially at a young age. So how do you see those two worlds converging and like ed oh, yeah. tech and actual reality coming hand in hand? I don't, for, especially for kids, K-12, uh, online education should, 100% online education is 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 going to be bad for most, for almost all students. There'll be some exceptions, but almost all students. All right. A lot of what you also learn in school as a kid is socializing, interaction with peers, right? How to share, right? Um, all those things. And if you are a kid, you are not designed. I don't, I don't know as a kid, as a human, you are not designed to sit in a chair from eight to four or from nine to five and crank the entire day. So I think it will change not only in schooling, but also work, right? Now, I, the answer is some mix and hybrid. To me, you then start pulling out what things do you want online and what things do you want in person. Online part. It's a crazy idea that who you're going to learn math from is the person who like is a school teacher in your zip code. Why not learn math from the best math teacher in the world? Then do the practice, ask questions, get help from the person that's in your zip code, right? And so just thinking of what stuff would you pull online and what stuff not, Khan Academy and Sal Khan, I think was one of the first to do this, to really flip the classroom, right? Which basically said, hey, watch your lectures at home. <laughs> then in school, we're going to do the actual homework, right? So you can ask questions, you can talk on. And, and I think we need to rethink how education is structured. Where I've given a lot of thought to is what happens to education after school. So as we talked about earlier, we think as in this in this country, education stops after college. That's crazy to me. You have the next three, four of your life. And when you start thinking about that, you say, okay, how does school or education, how we learn change after like after, you know, after college? One big factor is basically for the first 20 years of your life, you're required by law to sit in that chair. After that, you have choice. And so the education, how we're going to learn for that future life, you've got to be about something that you choose to do, which means it's got to be engaging, interesting. You've got to be compelled to do it. There has to be a reason. You have to enjoy it. And so that, I think, is one big push. The other big thing, which I think we have a dearth of in the research and work, and we are spending time on now, is there are no rules like a thumb or how people think of how you learn after school. Think about that for a second. Every other aspect of your life that you want to improve, there are at least rules of thumb that we've come to understand and agree on. You should sleep X amount of time, X amount of time a night. You should exercise X amount of times a week. You should, br you should brush your teeth at least twice a week. How should you learn after school? 
There's nothing. Now, I think there's like interesting stuff. It's like, how much time do you spend a week to learn about things that you already know on, but you want to go deep? How much time a week do you spend about learn, learning things that you're going to go broad on? You know, and like, this is the stuff that we are starting to work on. Because what I want Masterclass to be, and you're asking what our vision is in the future, I want to be the school for the next three fourths of your life. Um, that's, that is my, that is, that is my vision. You know, and I'm curious, like there are, uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Um, there are a lot of things that we could learn in a structured school environment, you know, like certain things that are just schools designed better for versus others. Right. And so what about the other stuff, right? Like entrepreneurship is one of them. Yep. Some other, other things that, and, and I think that entrepreneurship specifically is something you, obviously you learn just by doing as much more than just like, you know, but there's a lot that you could learn from other people yep. and their stories and, and how they did it, even though there's no blueprint, but that's just one example. Um, I don't know. Venture capital could be another example, right? Like things that, I mean, it's not, there are certain things that you might learn in school that might help you, but there's, there's, there's a lot that school doesn't teach you. So is that something that you think could also uh, work? Yeah. I mean, I look, I think there's on a bunch of levels. I think school part needs to adapt to teach you other things in life. And there's life skills that you should learn in school per finance should be mandatory in every school in the country, right? Uh, I agree. You know, stuff on emotional intelligence, understanding, understanding yourself, introspection, like that stuff I think would be really great to be able to teach in school. Um, I, I, so I think there's a bunch of practical skills, how to negotiate, how to look at a contract. You've been to law, you've been to law school. Looking through a contract, understanding it is something everybody should know how, how to do, right? And understand. Um, so I think there's a bunch of things there. But I also think we have to be in charge of our own education and how we learn. And we got to figure out what that path is. And I think that path is understanding things that you already enjoy and you want to build a career and you're going to go deep. But it's also expanding about things that you just don't know about. Because I do believe in the strength of weak ties. And the more you know about things that you don't know about is going to improve your life in every dimension because you're going to be able to tie in the best things that people have learned from like from 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 psychology, from history, from music, and be able to apply to your life in ways that nobody's ever thought, ever pictured before, imagined before. David, let's make your dreams come true for just a second here. You become the senator, a senator in the United States, right? You represent Northern California. That was right? my dream. Like, that, that was you my. Yeah, you represent California, not Northern California. You're just from Northern California. Um, and specifically, you know, you're going to work on education policy, yeah. right? That's something that you're passionate about. That's what you want to do. So, Senator David, right, what what does your policy look like when it comes to education? What are the things that you would change? What are the things that you would completely get rid of? What would you mandate, right? Let, let's Let's talk about that. Yeah. Okay, this is a cop-out and then, and then after I'll give you the real answer. This is my approach to like everything I don't know about or I'm not great at yet. It's like I go talk to other people who I think know more than me that are on extremes. And I actually think part of asking advice, and there's an, a craft to this, is you pick people with strong points of view. Because you're not asking for their advice, you're asking for their thoughts so you can expand what your horizon is, right? So that's what I would do. But if you said, okay, let's let's assume all that's done, what is it? Well, you, let's assume you've already done that. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. assume you already do it. It's a really good question. I think education shapes almost every outcome of your life. It shapes how long you live. It shapes income. It shapes healthcare outcomes. I would work my butt off to figure out the way to improve 
access to the top quality education. Um, I think it is messed up that basically tax dollars go to zip codes, right? At least like in parts of the country, right? So education is funded by people who live in your district and area, which means there are certain school districts that get a lot more funds than other schools, right? Um, I think you have to basically create one pot of money and then create the school system from that. So every school per student gets the same amount of funding. Um, that like you asked me the number one thing, that's probably the number one thing I would do. I'm curious though, like in your opinion, how do you identify the top tier of educators? Like what is the, what are the, on what basis are they the top? Is it like how successful they are in the real world? Is it how much they've studied or like accumulated in education over their life? Like how, how do you identify that? How do we at masterclass or how like in the world would, well, like, how would you go about identifying it? Yeah. Like, you know, it's one of the hard, hard, most difficult questions to answer. It's not just, and it's, it's a problem not just in education. It's also a problem in healthcare. How do you identify the best doctor, right? Um, like it's actually very difficult. You ask most people who do is their dot is their dot is their doctor good? They'll be like, yeah, you know, she is so she is so nice and she runs on time. And you're like. That's not about a good doctor, right? Um, and the same thing with a school teacher. You ask if the school teacher is good. They're like, I mean, he's so nice or whatever it is, right? Um, well, he's not bad. I mean, he's good, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, he's good. Yeah. Um, I think the – so there's a bunch of ways that people try to do it, right? Some are they basically try to give you a test before you – like before you start the class and after the class and you say, how much did you learn, right, and do it. The problem with that method is that – you assume you know everything that that student should actually learn in that grade or that class. And that has bias because a lot of things like, are you know, things about how to think about things or change how you think. And that, that usually goes to facts, which I don't think is important people learn. So it's really hard. One way that's happening now, right? And, and you know, it's not, you know, there's lots of different thoughts on this is you basically ask people if they think that they learned a lot. And that's, what we do at masterclass. So we basically judge a class on a bunch of criteria, but one of the questions we ask is if basically, if you learned a lot, um, that's one, two, we ask, did masterclass or this class change your life? Now that's a crazy bar to set, right? But right now about a, you know, a fifth to a fourth of our students say the masterclass has changed their life. And to me, you're asking somebody, which I know is a crazy thing in a lot of education, but I don't want to necessarily assume I know everything that you have to learn. And so this is a way where like I'm putting you in charge of your education where have you learned something that you're, that has changed your life? And if so, right. great. If not, we have much more work to do. One of the things that I've thought about, I think would be super interesting. And I don't know if this is happening out there or if something that you guys have thought of, but you know, a lot of, a lot of what we learn in school, it's like theory and practice, right? There's two sides of it. And so, you know, it'd be interesting, like not everyone who's good at the theory part is good at the practice and vice versa, right? There are people that are very successful in the real world that we might want to learn from, but they might not, to your point before, like be able to teach a class, yeah. right? The way that's effective for people to actually learn the, in an effective way. So, you know, kind of combining the two, like someone who's very well studied on, on one topic and just knows a lot about it. Um, and then someone who's just been successful at it, but, and then kind of bringing those, you know, the best of both worlds together, to, to actually teach that content. I don't know if that's something that there's other ways to go about it, but yeah, so, um, I mean, just our, our approach to this is we get the best in the world at the craft, right? So at the practitioner, we bring in other people and they bring in other people in the world that are world-class at, 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 to, to actually teach. And we have people on the team too, right? Um, 
and we craft and they, it's ultimately their call and decision, what goes in and what goes not, what's not in the class, but how to craft a really great class. And we bring everything that we've heard. We ask students what they want to learn, right? Things like that. And then we also, I mean, this is a big part why our classes are not live. Like live is way harder. If you want to make something really compelling and great, you want to be able to edit it and change it. This is why, you know, most of what's watched like enjoy to watch films and TV shows aren't live. There's very few things that we like to watch live. A sports game where you want to know the result right away or news where you want to know the result right away. Most of our things are usually worse live. Yeah. Very interesting. That's why the founder hour is not live. <laughs> yeah, right. Same way. That's why radio's dying. No, I'm just kidding. I want uh, to do live, know. and these guys said no because they want to be able to post produce. <laughs> we'll, we'll do it live. No, for sure. <laughs> Well, David, I think that we could probably go on for another few hours and discuss this, but I know that we both don't have that time. Uh, but, you know, we, thank you so much for, you know, sharing your story with us and your perspective on, you know, entrepreneurship, on business, on life, and obviously about masterclass as well. Um, you know, personally, I mean, maybe I shouldn't tell you this, but I thought before I even know the amount that you charge, I thought masterclass was in the thousands of dollars because, like, when I would think about what would I pay – I would pay probably upwards of a thousand dollars a year because you know I mean I went to I, we went to USC each fucking unit is like eighteen hundred dollars so you know when you think about it that way you know and you think about the pers that perspective you're like oh wow one hundred eighty dollars is like free but then again you know you talk about accessibility and you know it kind of makes sense so you know I don't want to screw it out screw people over it or but yeah I really appreciate that. If you want to pay a couple thousand dollars, glad to charge you for it. But you know, just but you know, look, it was really important to me and tied to the mission of making it possible for anybody to learn from the best to democ. We talked about democratizing you know access and genius, and so for us, it was what is the least amount of price point we can do that we can still be a self-sustaining business, right, or become a self-sustaining business. Right. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, thank you, David. This has been great. Hopefully, we can meet in person someday soon. Um, but all the best to you and, and Masterclass, and we're excited to see what comes next. Yeah, thank thank you guys. It was really a, pl a, pl a pleasure, and you know, thanks for helping and all the support that you guys do to the you know other entrepreneurs and founders. Thanks, David.